Thank you, Jacob. Thank you to the new polity. Um, thank you to everyone for coming. Great to see so many friends and uh, even some people that I've known online without having met. So it's nice when all of uh, it's nice when everyone kind of materializes somewhere all of a sudden um, in unexpected places. And uh, and so it's really great to be here. Um, and thank you, Jacob, for that kind introduction. Um, if I ever thought that I was going to run a policy journal at some point, I probably would have found something else to do as it's not my, not my, not my bread and butter, but it has made for, for an interesting few years. So the title of my talk is The Eclipse of Innovation. And in a way, its point is a conventional or, or simple one. I would hardly be the first to argue that the major transformational innovations of modern times, mass water purification, the invention of electricity, automobiles, modern manufacturing processes are already behind us. Some, of course, disagree with that analysis and suggest that extraordinary innovations still lie in our future. But what I would like to do is examine why this slowing of innovation is a predicament for us, potentially a good one, why we are trapped by a certain logic of innovation, of applied invention, even, why it's, even while its achievement becomes harder and harder to unlock. To do that, I want to make a use of an apothem from uh, Jean Baudrillard, my favorite uh, French theorist, who said that America is the last remaining primitive society. The last remaining primitive society. Strange as his assertion might sound to the typical American convinced they're living high on the hog uh, in a highly advanced civilization with everything to offer, at its heart, the observation is quite simple. If we entertain ourselves with visions of what countless innovations await human society in the future, upheavals that we couldn't even imagine, well then, relative to that, we are in a ever primitive state not resting on the accomplishments of countless centuries before us, but awaiting the arrival of some yet unheralded innovation. This expectation permeates our discourse in the two areas of life that characterize modern societies, technology and freedom. But it is belied by something commentators have, have observed many times. The great technological advances and maybe we can be grateful for this, seem to lie further and further off, while our culture, on the other hand, consists of a bunch of recycled tropes, which became painfully evident to me when I started walking in coffee shops a few years ago to hear the tunes of the 90s uh, played uh, you know, on, on retro stations, um, which resulted in feeling very uncomfortably trans transported to like the feeling of summer 1994 which since literally nothing happened in the 1990s is not, a, not something you really want to be transported back to. Um, so we have these recycled tropes and um, we have algorithmically developed music, uh, which is what most of the music on Spotify is. Um, and in the last year, a newfound and disabling aversion to risk, um, which does not seem to be present in this room. Um, <laughs> My thesis, I'm from Texas, so. Um, 
my thesis is a simple one, that this praise of innovation in our society, its elevation into the very hallmark and credential of American technology is self-undermining. The establishment of innovation, disruption, and change as the totem poles of our primitive society has left us completely defenseless and without any framework within which to evaluate whether changes are politically, socially, or culturally beneficial. To be sure as well, the political response of conservatives has only exacerbated the problem. They have watched as the creative destruction of the modern economy has been brought to bear on the very culture that they claimed was prior to politics and which they said would enrich and sustain the advances of modernity. How's that working out? This praise of innovation comes from a very deep source within the modern tradition. Indeed, it may in fact be the heart of the modern tradition, the praise of the new for its own sake. But its assumption of pole position in the direction of modernity, its corresponding spread through communication, advertising, through the experience of continual, although superficial, change, through the setting of innovation as a goal in thousands of boring corporate offices and small humdrum businesses, innovation is even expected of graduate students, I'm told has led to a twofold problem. First, no one can challenge innovations that come along. This is, this is, that is just as it should be, as for at least within the framework of modernity, as establishing a political or cultural framework for approving innovations is exactly what the praise of innovation was intended to undo and supplant. Innovation was intended through its own power and its own appeal, its continual offering to us of shiny objects around which to orient our political and economic expectations. The goal was to obviate the need for standards in evaluating new things. Second and related, innovation burdens our ability to think about what we want to do and produce. The obligation to present ideas under the guise of innovation means that genuine innovations, by ancient standards, those would be innovations that last, are, are rare, while sham innovations, like the hundreds of ridiculous Uber for X companies that claim home food delivery is a major triumph of modernity, those sham innovations are essentially all that we now have left. Today, the FANG companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, um, account for about 15% of the market value of the S&P 500 and regularly dominate daily market moves. So I'd like to start with a kind of semiotics of innovation, a glance at its role in contemporary society, how we conceive of innovation before considering the reality of our situation economically and politically. Then I'd like to turn to a brief examination uh, at the end of how the classical tradition approached the same phenomenon and conclude with some suggestions about how our universal language of innovation could be, if not overcome, at least managed uh, as it was originally intended to be uh, given our actual needs. So a few comments then um, toward a semiotics of uh, novelty and innovation. The first feature of our language of novelty and innovation is that it has largely replaced or masked that of progress. To be sure, the language progressive is still present, but change in all things is sweet, as Euripides said, and since change is pleasant, 
It provides something that's praiseworthy without having to be judged good or bad. Particularly in the business sector, change signals progress without an end of progress or of history, which is why we remain forever primitive. The expectation of universal human progress has subsided, replaced by an imperative for change or an innovation imperative. I just made up those words, but they could very easily be, um, I imagine that you could sell lots of books with that title. Um, this innovation imperative uh, has, has replaced the expectation of um, a directed progress and has removed, of course, almost every barrier in, in our social world. And it now stalks the nation in search of those who will not accept the new consensus of further and further social liberation. With this imperative for change, we remain wedded to the expectation of further and further technological change in the world. The second feature of our speech about novelty then is that it, it envisions innovation as the arrival of further and further technology. As Lyotard once said, technology, quote, always means new technology. In the classical world, that was not the case. Although each of the arts, like rhetoric or blacksmithing, had to be discovered in the first place and then improved, there was no expectation of a continual development of entirely new arts. The art of rhetoric is discovered once and then perfected, maybe lost and recovered again. But on its own, it does not lead progressively to ever further new forms of human expression or to the arts of communication or advertising or propaganda or to the replacement of human speech with tweets and messages only to have conference calls made cool again through Clubhouse. <laughs> Similarly, an artisan may make a better quill pen, but new technology means that you have to create something entirely new to replace the pen, a typewriter or speech-to-text software or computers that now try to guess what we're about to search for. Uh, you can turn off that feature, by the way. Um, more directly within modern capitalism, we know the drive for innovation in the form of Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction, which praised capitalism's permanent revolution uh, just as Marx had opposed it. Of course, from the standpoint of the consumer or citizen, most of the changes brought by technological innovation are not even of our own devising. We're, so to speak, on the receiving end of them. We merely accept them or briefly resist them before eventually accepting them. And nowadays, innovation itself, to say nothing of the injustices done halfway around the world as our gadgets are, are manufactured, the blood running down the walls behind the you know, sleek design of the Apple store, all of that remains forever behind the scenes. While we enjoy the final product, the Apple computer with a completely closed case, impervious to tinkering, um, as computers used, used to be eminently um, tinkerable uh, devices 25 years ago. So technology allows us to participate in novelty without being responsible for it. Seeing the shiny new object and focusing on it for a bit is an integral experience of modern technological life. Finally, the third pr chief principle of change lies in the modern conception of freedom. We can, we are told, make changes in our personal lives and make innovations in business, or better ourselves by making innovations in business. 
Our politics tries to guarantee this freedom. The right continues tilting at the windmill of heavy taxation, which was lifted um, 40 years ago or so. The left imagines that a universal basic income will orient us not toward family life, but toward a vaguely Marxist lifestyle of personal invention and creativity. The modern notion of freedom includes a strong sense of change in newness. Indeed, it's doing something new or something different that proves that we're free in the modern sense. Often when our choices lack any other ground or purpose, that's their justification, at least in the common mind, because they show that we're not bound to the past or tradition except by our own free choice. At the same time, we suspect that if we did accept everything handed down to us, our way of life, our thoughts, our beliefs, it would be a kind of evidence or proof that we're not free. Consider the recent marketing campaign of an American fragrance boutique seeking to draw customers in with the sign outside of it that reads, create your own ritual. Now, rituals are, uh, far be it from me to criticize, um, rituals are a very important part of self-care for the modern <laughs> consumer. Um, rituals imposed by tradition, by contrast, um, are bad. So, yet we need them, so we seek to bring rituals under our own control, or rather imagine that they're under our own control even while we remain dependent on the products supplied by capital. A similar dynamic is at work with the freedom of exchanging information on modern media platforms, where it becomes ever clearer that our purported freedom is managed in a thousand ever more sophisticated ways. So alongside these three aspects of our praise of innovation um, that I just discussed, it's, it's fluidity compared to modern progress, it's, it's, it's presence in modern uh, technology and as an aspect of our freedom, are two problems or difficulties. The first difficulty, I think, is that the obligation to be innovative has cheapened innovation. If it were really so easy to be innovative, we probably wouldn't need to remind ourselves of it constantly. We wouldn't need to attend countless seminars on improving our strategy for innovation. I just wanna be clear, I've never attended such a seminar, but I'm under the impression that they are common in the, uh, in the business world. Um, in a bygone day, of course, the ritualized elements of human life reminded us of the orthodoxies from which the natural tendency of fallen human nature has been to stray. But now our common mantra is that of constant innovation. Praising innovation has become a sort of litany or mantra, a continuous element of our speech, nurturing a continuous dissatisfaction and encouraging discontinuity with solid elements of our past. Today, innovation has become a standard both cheap and easily available because anyone can claim it and everyone does, and ever more dear as genuine advances seem further and further off and seem to come at greater and greater human costs. We are immersed in a world of advertising-driven excitement over the newest developments and the newest studies in countless areas. The likeliest candidates for genuine innovations have now become those that merely keep available the main features of modernity as it already exists like new techniques for extracting oil from the earth or doing so more cheaply. But innovation constantly required just to maintain our status 
That's not the sort of innovation that was intended to be the hallmark of modern society. It's the innovation of a rat running around in a wheel. The egalitarian impulse, too, has leveled the playing field in terms of novelty. And in the absence of a political regime oriented toward truth, liberty has nothing else toward which to orient itself, nothing equally accessible to everyone else than the appearance of novelty and change. Firms, business firms, of course, need to innovate because every firm faces the necessity of survival and necessity is the mother of invention. But everyone knows how rare it is to revolutionize a field. The iPhone was new only once, in spite of Apple's attempt to claim that every new iPhone is newer and better than ever before. A society devoted to innovation in this way finds itself always at that beginning point, always primitive and, all, and ever more neglectful of the baseline of tradition against which it could even measure its innovations. For human beings who are creatures of habit, innovation also conditions us to, conditions us instead to expect to have to relearn everything at some point or be left behind without a job because you didn't succeed at retraining or out of the cool club because you didn't make the leap from one social media network to the next one at the right time. Um, I, I did join Facebook the very first weekend it was uh, made available. Um, very proud of that, but <laughs> uh, even as recently as 30 years ago, uh, few realized that the new technologies coming on the scene, the screaming modem whose link up was once described as a digital call of the wild, <laughs> would, for those of you who know that, that sound, um, there's actually a Spotify album where you can listen to modem sounds from the <laughs> computer sounds from the 90s. I listen to it sometimes. Um, few, few realized that these, that these technologies would reinvent human communication by the close of the 20th century and again in the opening years of the 21st. But in another way, very little has changed. My internet usage is about the same as when I joined the Prodigy Network uh, in late 1990. I write emails, browse online content, uh, and still use WordPerfect. I've also never logged off um, in those 31 years, certainly not for Lent. Um, <laughs> a month or two ago, as concern over the tracking features of WhatsApp drove everyone to Signal, a 1990s era chat program called ICQ, which I used, uh, enjoyed a brief reappearance among the recommendations of tech writers. Slack is essentially the same design as internet relay chat or IRC of the 1990s, just with graphics and annoying links to other apps. Once we make the change to a new method of communication, things change again and we're cast into a realm where suddenly children know more than adults and in which human language itself becomes distilled down into iconic symbols reminiscent of some hieroglyphic language. <laughs> Having cultivated the arts of communication for centuries, suddenly we're back at the beginning. <laughs> How should one speak? No one knows. Um, 
And after a year of COVID lockdowns and the collapse of ordinary in-person civilization, literally no one knows how to communicate at all. So technology combines the conceit of the advanced with the fact of the primitive. A second difficulty with our praise of innovation leads us a bit toward beginning to think outside the framework of innovation itself. That's the piecemeal approach of innovation, that innovation is always in response to particular problems. What does it mean to be in a situation in which we're always coming up with new ideas and inventions and, um, or inventions which we implement um, in the form of innovations? Well, if we thought that the sources of our dissatisfaction and problems were complex or insurmountable, we could not have any hope that innovation would solve them. In some cases, of course, like mending a broken bone, a pro particular problem may have a simple cause and a simple solution. But if we turn toward the world of technological innovation as it seeks to solve human problems, the praise of innovation is stuck within this dynamic. It obscures the question of whether the human problems it seeks to solve are complex or even unsolvable. Why would we think that the human problems could be solved by thousands and thousands of different apps and firms um, rather than, than, than having some other complete solution? Since the praise of innovation assumes that this need for um, individual, individually responsive innovations will never end, it implies that the sources of dissatisfaction will never be fully addressed. At the same time, everyone understands the way that technological innovations themselves become liabilities. They can quickly become new sources of dissatisfaction, which gets remedied by further innovation. The inability to communicate easily with those far from us, for example, resolved by rapid communication that holds us down and quickly yields to the inability uh, to be satisfied for long by any particular innovation. So by praising novelty and newness everywhere, we've actually lowered the stakes of innovation and transformed the concept from representing something truly transformative to instead being a never-ending collection of piecemeal responses to particular dissatisfactions, a process which, not surprisingly over time, often causes greater dissatisfaction on the whole. In a way, then, the age of innovation has come to an end through its universalization and its extension, its presence in every press release, in the announcement of every product, in every annual evaluation, in every paper abstract, in every artwork and musical composition. The original imperative of modernity, to, of modernity to overthrow the ancient and bring in the new has little left to work against. And so innovation has become a kind of burden, uh, like creativity, a kind of obligation. Some technological writers have begun to try to call their readers back to the expectation of something great, like the Mars rover. Finally, this time we'll make contact. This time we'll discover alien life as though anyone mired in COVID lockdowns cares at all about what is happening on the red planet or has any faith at all that it will lead to a betterment of their lives on earth. Innovation has become an emblem applied rhetorically. Whatever we do, we must assert and uh, enjoy its novelty. The new has become promiscuous and because we could not possibly rise to the standard of producing a comprehensive uh, change or innovation, the standard has fallen. It's over. The new is now everywhere. 
This widespread admiration for innovation has thus dissolved its significance. Though great inventors hold sway for some time, now they often crowd out those who would follow in their wake, and the most successful companies uh, can still collapse overnight. But the general tendency to praise innovation has made it sound like a case of continual special pleading. The claim of originality is now a required advertisement. Now that innovation is everywhere, we use its language, but we hold back from believing in it. Our pride is not in being inventors, but in being the consumers of invention, enjoying the newness of new things without bearing the burden of their creation. Consider the marquee companies that define the most extraordinary innovations of recent years. Uber sought to revolutionize the transportation industry by initially teasing ordinary consumers, commuters rather, with the prospect of making a little extra money by driving people to their destinations. They put over the cost of vehicle ownership and upkeep onto private individuals and sold their drivers services at a below market rate, endangering licensed taxi companies all across the world, putting taxi drivers uh, out of work while in most cases not providing their own drivers with the wages necessary to make a living. Great. Um, on top of this, in spite of this, Uber continues to lose money on every ride. Finally, after nearly a decade of the Uber revolution, England has forced the company to treat its contractors by the standards of normal employment, revealing the company, this great innovative company, to be a global taxi monopoly that cannot make money. As industry analysts have pointed out, for example, in the pages of American Affairs, the taxi business faces numerous obstacles inherently to further business optimization that make it an unlikely target for the grand label of modern innovation, but we couldn't resist the label. Uber spawned hundreds of similar companies offering Uber for X with roofing companies somehow managing to reinvent themselves as Uber for roofing, uh, where you take a picture of your roof in order to get an estimate. The failure rate of these companies has been extremely high, which libertarians claim is part of the success of the marketplace. Um, but obviously it's the sign of a wasteful society that has no clue how to prioritize any of its efforts. Amazon surely would be at the top of any list of companies that have engaged in extraordinary innovation. But what sort of company is Amazon? Amazon, let's not lose sight of this, it's a mail order company that happens to have put itself in a monopoly position in logistics, which in turn enabled it to impose an insane hyper-tailorist production system on its workforce. Again, congratulations, innovation, you've won free shipping. But really, what does it boil down to other than that? It's two-day shipping, that's all it is. Maybe one-day shipping in major cities Maybe one day they'll invent instant shipping, also known as shopping. <laughs> with, um, with, Amazon, with Amazon maneuvering into a monopoly position in the mail order industry, it has now rendered the act of shopping at Walmart, previously a revolutionary act when Walmart rampaged through American towns in previous decades, although with an actually innovative uh, business uh, production and sourcing model, 
Shopping at Walmart is now a reactionary act, since you actually have to you know, see people and go physically to a place where you can even take the further reactionary step of not using the checkout machines, but allowing a human being to do the work um, under the reactionary slogan, human beings, use them or lose them. <laughs> Anyone who has used major internet services is also well, well aware that if you're not paying, you are the product. The extraordinary algorithms of Google search, which are now replicated nearly as well by other services, this is true of almost every, um, almost all the software is kind of trivial to produce at this point. Um, hence, after Clubhouse became popular, Twitter then introduced like a live chat room option. So they all just copy one another. Um, these extraordinary algorithms of Google and Facebook are designed to keep you immersed in and dependent on the online world. At first, as with Walmart, the features of your ordinary life are merely taken away. Gone are the butcher and the baker, but eventually they're given back to you in cute little butcher stands within the town hall section of Walmart. Gone are the conversations with your friends, lost in an a sea of email and texts, prevented through a global lockdown till they're given back to you through social media's introduction of the audio chat room. Major inventions elsewhere in modern society are also not particularly impressive. When Boeing transformed itself along the models suggested by modern management consultants, the result was the 737 MAX 8, a failed attempt to improve on the original design of the 737, which was a true and lasting innovation when it took over the skies in the 1960s. In the auto transport world outside of Uber, we were also promised a world of driverless cars. Indeed, that was probably the goal of Uber from the beginning, the only thing that could possibly make Uber profitable. But even our advances in AI have not made driverless cars a reality on anything other than very carefully planned streets with few obstacles and no weather hazards. AI cars will not be racing through the streets of Boston anytime soon. More generally, the world of AI and machine learning, driven by the view that the brain is basically an abacus, only more complex, has given us also little in the way of tangible transformations for the better of human society. Nearly 10 years ago, in 2012, the Northwestern economist, Northwestern University economist, uh, Robert J. Gordon, made just this observation uh, in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. He noted, People were criticizing him at the time for, for panning all these areas of innovation. You look back and it was 10 years ago and basically nothing has happened. Um, he noted that most of the innovation through the year 1970 was driven by um, inventions from the late 19th century. And then in the 1970s, a new wave of innovation came um, through, computer, through computer technology finally married with um, the telephone systems in the 90s. But the areas of innovation supposedly before us Genetic engineering, pharmaceutical research, the fracking revolution, robotics, driverless cars are either phantoms or don't hold out the prospect of a genuinely beneficial transformation. They may not be something that we actually want. They may be positively bad. So where is the most frequent innovation in the American business world? I did a little research on this. Um, according to, and there's an up-to-date study waiting for me in the February 18th issue of the Wall Street Journal, 
the, of 11 different industry sectors, the one with the largest concentration of highly innovative companies was consumer staples. Procter & Gamble, Altria, and Philip Morris, Colgate, Colgate-Palmolive, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and Walmart. Yes, Coca-Cola is consistently innovative, more innovative year in, year out than tech companies. And what an enormous difference it makes in our lives. Um, <laughs> if it weren't for that, you know, think about how much less Coke we would be drinking if it weren't for the annual Coke innovations. Um, now, ironically, the greatest change of the last year, the imposition of lockdowns across the developed world, contrary to expert recommendations during prior viral outbreaks, have not been heralded as an innovation, but as a necessary and, of course, very wise uh, policy innovation. Uh, from the standpoint of antiquity, they would probably be considered something more like a cataclysm. Um, more and more than the, the innovations that do intersect with ordinary human life are either keeping us afloat where we already are, as with the innovations doubtless necessary to <clears throat> secure Texas's power grid in the future, I strongly support that. Um, I was teaching uh, Hobbes on the state of nature at that time, and it provided for weeks, weeks of examples. Um, or are exploiting, or they're exploiting and abusing ordinary life in the name of innovation. So can we mount a response to this innovation next section of the talk. Um, it's simultaneous presence everywhere, it's dilution and it's creation of pointless efforts. To be sure, some of the elements of our corrupted praise of innovation are systemic problems within our economy. An economy that featured American innovation in the manufacturing of computer chips and the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals domestically would probably help us, free us from dependency on foreign sources. Our excellence, quote unquote, in, com in consumer staples, innovation, thus may reflect our status as a consumption-driven consumer economy, which doesn't produce anything anymore. That, by the way, is probably all also accounts for some of the rapid um, cultural changes over the last 25 years, as our marquee industries um, are now those which directly um, translate the, the education of elite educated um, members of the tech industry directly into uh, changes in, in, um, in computer and internet and social media products. Still the larger question remains, how can we sort good types of innovation from bad? Is that possible? This question came before Aristotle in book two of his politics. Um, as he surveyed competing accounts of political life that had been made by other thinkers. Um, this is a favorite example of mine and, and uh, of many others as well. Hippodamus was a pretty boy, the first political scientist who uh, strutted around. Aristotle notes that he wore a heavy coat in summer as well as winter. Um, and in his city design, which was very, very rational, divided by threes, um, 10,000 people divided by three. Um, he didn't really think it all the way through. Well, there's one hippodamus and then three groups of 3,333. Um, 
he proposed honors in the city for those who discover useful innovations, those who discover something useful for the city, including for changes to the laws. So we're shifting in a political direction here. The regime for Hippodamus would be like a patent office awarding honors to those who could devise political improvements. Aristotle famously criticizes Hippodamus on the grounds that such a plan would lead to, quote, harassments and changes of regime. As Aristotle pointed out, human beings are creatures of habit and form a habit of obedience to the laws. Innovation in the laws could therefore not be brought within the tasks of the regime itself. You can't make a whole part of the regime continuously changing the regime. Rather, the regime as Aristotle envisioned it would oversee innovations and make sure that, they, that anything proposed would accord with the way of life of the city. The best regime would still have to engage in some military innovations in order to keep up with its opponents, but innovation as such could not be the goal. Here, Aristotle viewed innovations of our sort um, remedies for individual problems, Coca-Cola figuring out how to keep up profit margins, Boeing figuring out how to update and reuse a dated but landmark airplane body. He viewed all these as, as, as less significant, not the most significant sort of change. He was interested in major transformations of our whole way of life. Accordingly, he didn't offer too much concern about innovation occurring individually with the arts. The medical art has to get a little bit better every year. He was interested in transformations in our whole way of life. Now for Aristotle, the locus of those transformations of our way of life was the city and the political regime. Of that question, Aristotle was very attentive, devoting the understudied, neglected uh, fifth book of his politics to chronicling the many causes of political change and revolution and the ways that they can be remedied. For Aristotle, the regime defined the way of life of a city and the causes which prompt political change, according to Aristotle, are many rather than few. No arrangement of human beings, no regime, no city's way of life, according to him, could endure. But he advised every regime on how to preserve itself, for the causes of a regime's destruction stem especially from its flaws. Only through improving one's regime, said Aristotle, could one make it endure striving to keep what is good, striving to turn the regime away from the things that turn it toward destruction, constitute the path to bringing out the virtues necessary for political life. Ironically, such a task would require extraordinary changes, a multitude potentially, but not aiming at innovation, but rather at preservation, extension, endurance. Aristotle gives lots of practical pieces of advice bringing into a regime those outside it, for example, including the people, if you happen to be an oligarchy, could be worth considering. Um, not excluding the rich if the regime is a democracy. Um, all these things, all the changes that he advises would be major changes. Major changes are necessary to avoid um, a regime basically hurtling toward its destruction on account of its flaws. Among other things, Aristotle also recommended establishing an office of moral censorship to make sure that everyone's lives culturally corresponded with the intention of the regime. So too, he recommended education in accordance with the regime as a fundamental requirement for its preservation. But most generally, and the point I think that is 
um, the one I'm attempting to, to make in response to modern innovation, is that for Aristotle, aiming at innovation causes destruction. Aiming at preservation allows and requires the right kind of change or fosters the right kind of change. So then, is there any way that we could do this in our own regime as we seek to make changes in it in order to foster a Christian way of life? Well, first and foremost, restraining and redirecting the forces of innovation, which have unleashed by, uh, have been unleashed by modernity and by the modern scientific and industrial revolution, requires the means of state. In fact, we can say that the logic motivating the seeking of preservation rather than innovation is what would have been called in the early modern period, reason of state. Even setting aside morality and Christian customs, we're today obviously engaged in a kind of cultural project which viewed from the outside clearly risks the collapse of our state. And along with it, along with its collapse could be swept all of the local projects and regional Christian autarky that many have spent good decades building. So what would that project look like? I'm not going to outline a long, long project, just a couple of ideas. First, I think we have no alternative, unfortunately, but to look at the project of technological innovation as in some ways irreversible, uh, much as we should try to resist it and occasionally, you know, smash our iPhones and things like that. Um, instead, we should think about what change, using the Aristotelian framework, just for a minute, um, we should think about what kind of changes we're likely to get by aiming at innovation. That's what I say is you know, both destructive and futile. And what changes we're likely to get by aiming at the preservation of good things. On the negative side, we should think about state actions to limit the destructive innovations of modern firms that do nothing to contribute to human life. So for example, taxing online retailers heavily, shutting down Uber and crushing social media companies by making them responsible for the content on their platforms. Does Amazon improve communities and help preserve them? Well, Amazon is just about convenience. That's what Amazon is about. All the grandeur of modern science, all the technology, all the innovation, and what do we wind up with? Porn and free shipping. That's basically what we have. Way to go, modernity. <laughs> now, when it, I got to check the details of this story, but when Amazon came on the scene to sell books in France, um, the government implemented a rule that Amazon could not underprice local booksellers. I don't know if that's still the case. I, I think it is. Um, so if we had had a conservative movement uh, worthy of the name that actually thought about preserving human society and using political power for that purpose, it could have done that. And as it stands, France, strangely, still has bookstores where actual books can be found and sold. It even has bookstores dedicated to particular subject areas. It's completely bizarre. Here, Amazon has laid waste to booksellers and um, by telling people that their desire for physical bookstores was irrational and now that it's destroyed all the bookstores, now it's saying it's okay to desire physical bookstores as long as they're Amazon branded physical bookstores. So Amazon has been opening. This dynamic is often at work. Um, something is taken away in the name of innovation and we're told that it's irrational to want it, 
but then whatever entity took it away gives us 10% of it back um, and demands our gratitude. Most of the damaging innovative companies simply rely on bending the rules after all with new technology, hoping that it takes a long time uh, for the political and legislative process to catch up, which it, which it certainly does. Unfortunately, they've been right. Amazon could be disassembled under antitrust laws, Uber under labor laws, and social media companies six ways to Sunday. <laughs> On the positive side, we have given up, I think, if we think that aggressive state policies can't be used to bolster American family life. And I have a bit of a um, vision here, I think, of how of, some, of a positive way that this could help. Most conservatives in Washington, I'm not gonna go deep into this, um, these ideas, but uh, most conservatives in Washington tend to think of state spending on families as a remedial policy to help struggling families between jobs and things like that. But family policy, which is the policy of turning state spending toward families and measuring all government impact, all government policies by their impact on families. Um, and I might add that the, that the post COVID baby bust um, is taking the ground out from under us as we speak. So this might be something we should think about. Uh, we could imagine directing a good portion of, um, of national GDP toward bolstering the lives of families and children. Most families say they want one more child than what they currently have. And for families in income brackets that would benefit from family policy, most say they would prefer benefits in the form of direct spending. So what's the positive idea here aside from supporting families? Well, the positive transformative idea of family policy is that growing families actually spend more on family-related products. In an economy driven by growing families rather than what we have now, consumer products innovation, I mean, consumer products innovation is not gonna go away, um, but it would be better if there were a lot of spending coming out of, um, coming out of young families Although that would still be exposed to the you know, negative dynamics of, 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 our, of our economy, nevertheless, it would probably bend things uh, a little bit in the right direction, um, rather than to just more flavors of Pepsi and Coca-Cola. So, um, a couple of words, I, that's all I wanted to say about, about family policy, the idea is just that by spending more money on families and giving families, giving in particular grow, growing families more money to spend, the result of that should be a, a tilting of the production economy toward things that would be useful to families. So again, that's not a, not a magic solution. It, it wouldn't, um, it would have to be paired with, you know, firm laws against uh, social media companies and things like that. But given that we have to have a modern productive economy, we can at least think about, um, what direction we would want the, those energies turned. I wanted to say one word uh, in conclusion about novelty and, and Christianity. Um, and the word newness in scripture where it actually plays a lot or plays a, a large role. And maybe conclude just by not not with a not with a coherent thought on that, but just a, a vision of how far our experience of of um, of innovation or what parts of human life we now attach to the 
come to mind when we think of the power of innovation, show that uh, indeed Christianity, when it came on the scene, had a vision that it was offering, particularly through the experience of conversion, something new and something which would um, you know, have the experience and feeling of novelty. So in, in a way, by, by putting this at the end, I'm suggesting that it's, it's shocking that um, for a society which was originally Christian, that that's not at all what comes to mind when we think of novelty and innovation. The scriptures obviously warn against departure from orthodoxy, but they use the language of what is new positively in a lot of ways too. For example, in hymns to the Lord, sing ye to the Lord a new canticle, sing to the Lord all the earth, says Psalm 95. The author of Ecclesiasticus calls on God to renew thy signs and work new miracles. When Ezekiel calls upon his listeners to depart from their sins, he asks them to make to yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. In the New Testament, newness is, and the new is particularly present in the letters of St. Paul. In his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul calls upon Christians to become a new creature. He exhorts the Ephesians to put off, according to former conversation, the old man and to put on the new man. A thought repeated in his letter to the Colossians. Newness is particularly a quality of conversion um, in, in the early Christian writings. And St. Paul writes to the Romans of serving God in newness of spirit rather than in the oldness of the letter. In the same letter, he speaks of walking in newness of life and of being reformed in the newness of your mind. If then, says St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, any be in Christ a new creature, the old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So there must be something in that experience of innovation, which innovation as we currently experience it is replacing or making harder to find, making it harder to grasp, making it less accessible. And given that we probably won't be able to, um, you know, overthrow the modern economy entirely, I think at least getting in mind the idea of turning its energies toward the preservation of things that are good will help to establish a firmer baseline within which we can experience that newness uh, praised in the New Testament. So for us to experience the fullness of that newness in culture, society, and politics, we will first have to get a handle on the innovation that is now choking the world. Thank you.
so it goes online, I think. So bookmarks down. A few doors down is this used bookstore. And in addition to being able to walk in and buy a book off the shelf, they will actually special order anything that saves you the trouble of going on the internet, and they'll only charge you a buck more than what, you know, they, they find the copy that you want, just to let you know. And um, so few of us are going to be in a position to do what I'm hearing you all call for, not me, but everybody, which is to exert sort of a top-down influence on all of these areas. Um, few, people are, few people would accuse the Amish of being innovators. And near here, we have an hour and a half away, we have a community of Amish that's very grown very large, more so than Lancaster in, in Pennsylvania, who um, lost out on population a while back. And then this, and the Amish sort of spread. And most of us will be in a position to decide based on, either on our, in our own lives, in the lives of our families. That's the biggest impact that we're gonna have. And so I just wanted to pass on a principle that I believe I learned that the Amish use. And they are not, it's not like the Amish are like the Catholics where they've got a pope. Each community is self-governing, sort of like the Carmelite monastery, you could say. And they, um, you know, are making determinations about innovations, about novelties. Do we let this in or do we not? Um, based on two features. And I just want to interject that I have been in an Amish home, say, 25 years ago, in which there was a man using a cell phone. Whether or not it was listed, I don't know. And also, a few years ago, I heard of an Amish Uber service, which is really quite glorious. It was a buggy. And, you know. But I don't know how they worked the communication about it. But just the, the principle, <laughs> it's crazy. So the, 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 the two principles that would be asked in a local community, and they have these little, you know, they're called bishops, I think. And they, deci they decide whether to allow an innovation based on two criteria which would behoove us all to look at, I think, and it would be completely compatible with whatever else we're doing about these things in a larger sphere, but subsidiarily, so to speak, we can all do this. One is, what, what effect is this change gonna have on our family life? Because mm -hmm. they see themselves as having a sort of a family life that, uh, you know, they, they wanna have it sort of, not in common like, economically, but you know, they just want to have a community where they recognize each other and whatever. So what impact does it have on our family life? And what impact does it have on our community life? Because they see themselves, you know, they do, they are constituted, the local one constitutes, is constituted as a community. And so it has, you know, so that's all, you know, so I'm just offering that to you to comment, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how, I mean, that would be kind of innovative, wouldn't it, for us to think about those questions, the way we operate. We tend to respond to what's out there and just automatically go for what's new, which we don't have to do that, but that just tends to be what happens. So anyway, I just wanted to hear if you had any comments about that. Yeah, I mean, I think we could, we could do that on a national scale, but it would be something like um, <clears throat> you allow Silicon Valley to operate on San Francisco, basically like... <laughs> Because why not, right? <laughs> you know, just, so let them, they get like a five-year period where they get to introduce the iPhone in San Francisco or, you oh, know, whatever, a, a new app. And then the rest of the country, after we've walled off the city, you know, <laughs> we can like see, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, not joking, 
Um, but the, yeah, I mean, the difficulty, particularly with modern communication devices, is that you don't really know for a few years. So the, the Amish can make that decision because it's kind of like the opposite of the situation I just described. I mean, they're you know seeing how the technology has affected. I, mean, I think for the most part they don't adopt technology. No, precisely. Right. That, but, that I mean, was if you, if you, if you imagine, if, right? If you imagined, you know, a little village or something like that, it could see what was happening and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe adopt some things and not others. Um, so it would be nice, you know, somehow to have a. I mean, I guess other countries are in this are in this circumstance since they're able to, um, you know, look at innovations in America and you know maybe decide whether or not to allow them. Uh, in, in, in their own countries, yeah. but yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. Well, and, I'm, and again, I'm thinking about it sort of in terms of subsidiarity where most of our decisions aren't gonna be hitting the top level. It's gonna be our personal lives and our family lives. And so I'm just, right. it's more a question of encouraging us to, um, to use some sort of intentionality when we are thinking about, gee, do I buy this or right. do I not, you know, so. Right, I mean, at a personal yeah, and I mean, a, a right, a good practice is just no, in, no instant buying. You yes. know, add it to the cart and then come back and look a month later, and you're like, why did I put that there? And so, thank you, thank you for the suggestions. Thank you very much. In an effort to return to a society interested in preservation as opposed to innovation, it seems to me necessary, although perhaps you might disagree, to bring back a notion of the ethical boycott. Um, like Catholics and Christians, it seems, if we want to return to preservation, should stop shopping at Amazon, avoid Walmart, ditch McDonald's, cancel Uber, and get off social media. Is there something to this as opposed to just a sort of reactionary sort of thing? Or is there, in your understanding, any real moral imperative to boycott certain industries which seem to have a vested interest in the destruction of preservationist societies? It's a good question, and I, I, I'm not a moral theologian, so to get out of that one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I tend to be a little bit cynical about boycotts. I mean, I just don't think that they're very effective. Um, so I've never engaged in one myself. Um, and it, you know, it, it is hard when, you know, you even when you think that you're boycotting Amazon by not shopping from it, you know, you're still indirectly pumping tons of money into Amazon through using the internet, most of which is hosted on Amazon web services and things like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, as as the you know, as the as agendas that are culturally opposed to us become more in our face, um, and become explicitly tied to products and services that we buy, I do think the the question becomes more pressing. And I was I've I've never been especially compelled by like you know, don't shop at this coffee shop because they donate to things that are bad. But you know, the closer they get to like integrating the you know bad cultural agenda with your purchase it does become it does become harder um, yeah of course I'm I mean in, in general I'm in favor of all of these strategies when people conclude that they're prudent um, really getting out of Amazon turns out to be hard and the only way I could think to do it was shopping at Walmart which is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this uh, the quick quick comment um, kind of picks up on what Sandy was saying. Um, just a sort of maybe rule of thumb 
that I've used and just thought about with, in relation to certain institutions that we cherish, but often we find them under assault, is that people really not ought to not be in the business of trying to reform things that they don't actually love. Um, and I think well, we see that, uh, I mean, certainly in the, uh, in the Anglican tradition with like the prayer book, for example, you know, those who wanted to innovate and change, um, I, I, I think you could probably say many of them did not actually care for what it was that they were trying to change. Um, I think you could say that with a lot with regard to the church. Um, and, and, and I think we would, we would be a healthier society if those who wanted something new just went on and tried to make it. And I like the San Francisco example. It's like, go ahead and do it, but don't try to, um, don't try to change something that people care about unless you actually love the thing you're trying to change. And obviously there's, I don't know how, how you enforce this, but it just seems like a good rule of thumb is that, um, and we could be intentional about our own lives, is that uh, be careful about reforming zeal until you, until you actually care for that which you are, are reforming. It seems to me to kind of fit with the preservation sort of idea. So just a thought. An interesting, an interesting mirror question is, you know, what should we be willing to preserve, you know, and what regimes should be willing to, should we be willing to preserve? In that, um, in that book of Aristotle's Politics, he even talks about preserving tyrannies. Why? Because a tyranny is probably on the way to rapid self-destruction, and the only way genuinely to preserve it and make it endure would be to, to turn it into a kingdom or to turn it into a good monarchy. Um, so there seems to be at least implicit in that that idea. This is not this is kind of mirror of what you were talking about, um, but implicit in that idea should be a willingness to identify clearly what parts of our society are you know hurtling it towards destruction at a at a political level as well. And even if people don't listen, propose changes for them um, because you know maybe those proposals won't be uh, implemented now, but but maybe they will be someday. But I also don't think we should underestimate how much like just the present state of our industry um, affects our experience of, of innovation. I mean, if we were like a, a country where the most innovative industries were heavy industry, as opposed to Silicon Valley media companies, we would probably have a different, maybe not a, not a different evaluation of the role of innovation in modern society as a whole. But I really think that there's, um, you know, if the, if, if, um, if students graduating from, from top universities were all becoming like chemists and engineers, which is not my goal, but if that's what they were doing, if they were like building bridges and things like that, rather than just immediately going into soft industry jobs, it would, develop, it would have to develop a different character set and would lead to a different result in society. I don't have a proposal for how to get there except for you know, bringing back more heavy industry and, and manufacturing. But I think that would actually have a, um, a positive cultural effect, um, and then just and then on the other on the other aspect, um, you know when when the when the model consumer family is you know a childless, um, you know, single person living in an apartment somewhere, um, in a in a very progressive city. It's not surprising that that's the kind of of you know consumer corresponding consumer products that we that we get and the consumer products that are produced um, aim to you know affirm that lifestyle and keep people in it because they know they'll spend more so again we probably shouldn't underestimate the degree to which um, you know having a, a growing family society a, a society of growing families um, would actually have the spending power uh, 
to, to turn cultural production and consumer products towards something else. So it's not lost. I mean, um, look at the post-communist countries. I mean, some of them hit rock bottom in terms of cultural status. I know in Hungary, the, um, the birth rate there fell consistently every year from like 1977 until 2010, bottomed out in 2010 and has increased every year since as part of their, as part of their policies. Um, but you know, if, if, if post-communist countries can, can turn it around and become somehow even, even imperfectly, but you know, bastions of a prototype of Christian civilization, it is possible. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>